Okay, and the story begins. We are on the middle of page 16. Let's backtrack for a second. <clears throat> Last week, we essentially discussed what makes us Jews. <laughs> what makes a Jewish, what makes a Jew Jewish, right? Our Jewish background. But when we say Jewish background, we don't mean our educational background, our social background, our environmental background our uh, observant background. What we mean is our heritage. Being descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are part of that covenant. Essentially, Judaism means, uh, Judaism is not defined by action. It's not even defined by passion. It's an essential identity. It's not what I do. It's who I am. You actually see this in, in the Torah. In the Parsha of Lech Lecha, God tells Abraham, go forward, go forth to the land that I'm going to show you. I'm making you the chosen people. Right? Abraham jumped into the fire and did all these different things for God to, to, to kind of prove his, uh, his commitment. Yet, it's not actually mentioned in the Torah. These are Midrashim that we know from tradition. The Torah just says, God, uh, God just tells Abraham, I'm choosing you. Because essentially, Jewish identity is defined not by what we did to become part of this, but it's essential. It's just who we are. And therefore, we said on page 15, we're not relying on our righteousness. We're not relying on our kindness. We're not relying on our strength. We're relying on the fact that we're just part, simply part of this covenant. It's just who we are. And if we have that attitude, if we go through that meditation, in the morning what is our emotional reaction going to be what should our emotional reaction be the answer is joy if i if judaism was defined by behavior then i i'm going to constantly second guess myself how Jewish am I? <laughs> I'm going to constantly compare myself to other people. Am I as Jewish as them? Is that person as Jewish as me? But there's no such thing because Judaism is not the, there's no such thing as as Jewish. It, it's pretty black and white. It's just a, an identity. It's an essential identity. And the reaction to that is joy, simcha. This is who I am. In other words, it's not that mitzvahs make me Jewish. And it's not that if I do mitzvahs, I'll be rewarded. Or if I do mitzvahs, I'll earn brownie points with God. Or if I uh, don't sin, I'll stay out of hell. It's this is who I am. This is my identity. I'm going to do mitzvahs because of that. Take a look on the, the, the third paragraph on page 16. Our reaction to that is joy is simcha is praise. Therefore, as a reaction to us appreciating our heritage as an essential part of our identity of who we are, it's incumbent upon us to thank, praise, and glorify you, to bless, to sanctify, and to offer praise and thanks, giving to your name. Thank you, God, for making me a Jew. Thank you, God, for making this who I am. In the Hebrew, take a look in the Hebrew, the second line. 
Um, do you see it? You see it there? Okay. We say ashreinu. Ashreinu means we are fortunate. So I should feel fortunate because matov chelkeinu, how good is our portion? I have this portion, this heritage, this gift that God has given me of being Jewish. And I'm just so proud of it. And I'm feeling, I just feel thankful. I feel grateful. Umanaim, how pleasant. Goralinu is our lot. The, the, the root word is goral, raffle. You know what you need to do to deserve winning a raffle? Nothing. <laughs> Raffles don't make sense. Why am I Jewish? Why does God need me to do mitzvahs? He chose you. Right? Why do you love your kid? <laughs> you just do. Right? You, and, until, they, until they reach a certain age. No. <laughs> but loving our children is essential. That, you know, that, I'm not saying it's easy to get along with our children all the time. But the love is essential. Just because they're our kids. So why am I Jewish? I just am. I, I can't tell you how many times as growing up in the, I guess, Chabad circles, you know, we're out there, we're putting on tefillin with people, offering Shabbos candles to people. And I would say something like, would you like to put on tefillin? No, thank you, Rabbi. I'm not religious. Okay. Would you like to put on tefillin? <laughs> Rabbi, I'm not religious. What does religion have to do with anything? <laughs> I'm asking you if you want to put on tefillin. <laughs> I'm not asking you how religious you are. <laughs> We're obviously having a miscommunication. We're speaking two different languages. What that person is saying is, I don't, I, 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 it's not what I do. It's not my lifestyle. And what I'm saying is, this is your core identity. This is just who you are. Let's just do it. And then, Fourth, uh, third line on the paragraph. Umayafa, how beautiful is Yerushatenu? How beautiful is our inheritance? We have an inheritance from God. An inheritance is something that, again, what do you need to do to earn an inheritance? Nothing. <laughs> just, just don't, just don't get in the way. <laughs> don't get in the way of the law, and it comes straight to you, right? What do you do to be Jewish? And the answer is nothing. It's, it's simply just who we are. The question that often comes up when discussing this topic, and we, by the way, we learned this throughout the Tanya in, in just different words, but it's, it's pretty much the same thing, right? You know, we're looking at Judaism from a soul perspective, not from a utilitarian perspective. Because the moment we see Judaism as utilitarian, although there are elements of Judaism that are utilitarian, Judaism is very much action-based, but that action is a, it's more of a reaction to who we are. In other words, a, a person needs to act like a mensch because they are a mensch. <laughs> if an animal acts like a mensch, they're still an animal, right? <laughs> if a person acts like a 
mensch, they are expressing their true identity, human being, right? Just being being kind to be. If a person doesn't act like a mensch, they're still a person. They're just not acting that way. And, and it's the same thing with Jewish identity. You can't ruin Jewish identity. You can't lose your Jewish identity. It just doesn't work. People try. It's just uh, it 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 just it it comes back to you at some point. Where was I going with this? What was I about to say? I'm having one of those <laughs> senior moments. I'm too young for this. What's going on here? Oh my god! Basically, by default, you you got innately you innately good and you got it all in you, and that's basically where you were going. A hundred percent. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for backtracking me. And that's why, by the way, there's a mitzvah to love every single Jew. Because we're not loving actions. We're loving people. I don't love what everybody does. And you shouldn't love what everybody does. Right. Nobody's perfect. But we certainly should love everybody because we're loving them. We're not loving what they do. And it's the same thing. Um, We have to have that same attitude inwardly as well. Now, the question that often comes up is, how does this work with somebody who's converting to Judaism? Because they essentially are choosing to be Jewish if they're converting. In the Talmud, when it discusses converts, it always uses the term, the phrase, ger shenizgayer, a convert who converted rather than a Gentile who converted. Implying that deep down inside they had that identity within them, and that's why they were drawn toward Judaism. That's why in Judaism, we don't encourage converts. In fact, we turn them away to, because if they're going to actually become Jewish, if it's who, it's who they are innately, they don't need conviction. They don't need external conviction. They don't need to be incentivized. They don't need to be. They're going to make it there. They're going to have this fire that's going to pull them there. And if they're not meant to be converts, then they're not going to. So there's no need to push them one way or another. Just let things play out as their own because if they're meant to be Jewish, they if they have that that soul, if they have that. When we were in New Haven for Passover, a couple uh, what is that a month ago already? So we we were at my uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law's house, and there was a fellow joining us for one of the meals. Fascinating uh, person. He was not Jewish. His great grandfather was Jewish, and when he discovered that, he had an interest in Judaism. And now he's learning to for conversion. And it's just fascinating to, to see the passion, the interest, the knowledge that he has, the, the convictions that he has. It's just fascinating. I, I met somebody on Hanukkah time, actually, one of our Hanukkah events. He had interest in converting. I wouldn't say he was going through the most kosher of places. <laughs> He doesn't know me. I'm going to start telling, you know, but he said, do you have any advice for somebody who wants to convert? So I said, yeah. If somebody's trying to sell you Judaism, run away. Because if you're going to convert, you're going to convert. And if you're not going to, you're not going to. If somebody's trying to make it particularly convenient for you and cut corners for you, because that way you could expedite the process to be Jewish, run away. Because that's not... (laughs) If you're meant to be Jewish and this is what you want, you're going to be drawn toward it like a fire and it doesn't matter what the obstacles are. People shouldn't have to cut corners for you.
in chapter 33 of Tanya. One of my favorite chapters. We spoke about this very joy, the joy of being Jewish, the joy of being able to experience God in a deep and meaningful way. Not just philosophically, but even more than that, emotionally, to feel it because of the soul. And we gave the analogy of a simpleton, a regular, um, I'm telling you, as we get later, my vocabulary just dissipates. And I always tell the morning morning classes, as we get earlier in the morning, <laughs> a regular human being, right, gets a call from the king. It's hard to relate to these analogies because we don't have kings, but let's say some sort of dignitary or celebrity that was well-respected and well-liked. Obviously not a politician. Okay. <laughs> and um, he says, I'd like to lodge at your house. The reaction would be, whoa, I'm honored. <laughs> and you'd start doing whatever you can to make your house, your simple abode, a place where this dignitary is comfortable. And that's what God is essentially doing to us. I want to be part of you. I want to be part of your world. I want to be part of the way you think, part of the way you feel, part of the way you act. I want to be housed in you. And our reaction to this is, wow, Ashrenu, how fortunate are we that God wants us of us. And we actually, um, let, let's actually keep reading in the, in the, uh, in the text here. Where are we? Third line. You see it? And we'll read it in the English. In the middle of the line, fortunate are we. How good is our fortune? How pleasant is our lot? How beautiful is our heritage? Fortunate are we who early in the morning and evening, twice each day, declare the following, the Shema. We're so fortunate. And the way we enable God to become a part of us is through the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The Shema is our testimony, our conviction, our faith. We do this twice. The mitzvah is to do Shema twice, once in the morning, once in the evening. And commentaries explain that we have to recognize God in the morning when it's light outside when we're spiritually inspired, when there's revelation. And even when that's not so, when it's quote-unquote dark outside and it's um, we're uninspired, we don't experience quote-unquote revelation, we also have to say the Shema. We have, to submit, we have to say, sometimes we say Shema as a reaction to inspiration. That's the morning. Sometimes we say Shema because we need to create inspiration. That's the evening. And here's what we say. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. There's a difference, a profound difference, between saying that there is one God and God is one. And when we say God is one, we mean that quite literally. 
We don't mean he is the only God as opposed to having two or three or four gods. We literally mean he is one. He is the only one. And we spoke about this in our Tanya classes. Um, for those who may be listening, not live, check out our Tanya classes, chapters 20 to 25. We spoke about this. We spoke about God's perspective versus our perspective. Think about a public speaker's perspective. Think about a teacher's perspective. You're trying to teach something to someone, right? And you, you, you're first introducing the topic. You're not going to just say everything you know about everything because you're going to overwhelm the students. You have to summarize it. And you want to be very succinct. You want to take all that information that you're trying to convey, whatever it might be, whether it be Torah, whether it be your political opinion about something, whether whatever it might be. You want to kind of put it, condense it into one, two, three, or four lines, right? The recipient hears three lines of wisdom, and their job is to unpack that, take that home and think about it. As the conveyor of wisdom, teacher you said three lines but in those three lines you see everything make sense you see the whole thing you don't you said three lines but in those three lines you you see the full death right so when we look at god we're like those recipients we see three lines we see a couple of sentences <laughs> we see a physical world but, but to god he sees everything and it's all part of him there's a certain level of clarity um, that, that that perspective has, that that perspective has earned. God essentially is one. We don't see that by, by uh, naturally, and we try to appreciate that perspective. And this God who is one, one with the world, one with existence, he's Elokeinu, he is our God. He's personal, he's relevant. Let me put it this way, to say God is one is to say that God is relevant. To say that there's only one God, that's just a numbers game. <laughs> this one God is in heaven somewhere, doesn't care about me. What does that have to do with me? Right? This is what most people struggle with when it comes to religion, when it comes to Judaism. Bottom line, what does God have to do with me? And what we're saying is God is so... profound... He even wants a relationship with you. Usually a dignitary doesn't want relationships with simpletons. <laughs> he outsources that. He has noblemen. He has secretaries. What are the chances that Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos knows their, the names of their uh, lower down employees? <laughs> There's too many of them, and they're right. You outsource, you have managers. You God is Elokeinu, He's our God, and He's one with everything, He's relevant. Now, do we see this perspective by default when we open our eyes in the morning? Do we see that? Not really. <laughs> We don't really see that. Like the Ablevi Yitzchak of Bardichev used to say that God, you've created 
um, you know, if, if you if you would have put lust, jealousy, temptation, anger, all these negative qualities in a book, and it was a philosophical idea that we would study about. And love, passion, God, all these things were right in front of our face. Life would have been so easy. But God, you did it the other way around. It's not fair. <laughs> and the, the, the role of davening, the role of studying the Siddur, the role of studying the Tanya, the, the role of studying Torah is to help reverse that in our minds. God essentially saying, I want to be part of you. And us saying, God, we want to be part of you. Bridging that gap. So what do we do when we say the Shema? We don't see it, so we cover our eyes. Why do we cover our eyes? Because we're listening. We're hearing. Hearing in some ways is much deeper than, than, than seeing. When you see something, to, to, when you see something, it's very real to you. But it's very cheap. Because we convince ourselves we know what's going on because we saw it. But we don't. We don't really know what's going on. When we see something, we, we judge. I remember when I was studying. By the way, if anybody has any questions, thoughts, or reflections, I'm, <laughs> feel free to. You know, you, you know that by now, right? You know you can stop me. I remember when I was studying for my MFT degree. In one of our ethics courses, we were saying, we were learning about how a therapist has to kind of be careful of making or suggesting life-altering decisions for people. Think about it this way. Somebody, you get to know somebody very well, very intimately for 45 minutes. You get to know a slice of their life. You think you know them well. You know 45 minutes of their life. <laughs> you don't really know them. You know, that one slice of your life that you saw, right? Seeing, when we see something, we're satisfied with what we see, we move on. We don't get the full depth. We just get the surface. We want to have a real intimate relationship with God. We got to close our eyes. We can't just go by what we see. We got to listen. Right. Um, if we want to have an intimate relationship with our spouse, it's the same thing. We got to close our eyes, stop judging by what we see, and we got to listen. That's what the Shema is. Do I see God? No. Okay, at best, I, I recognize with my eyes what God does. There's more than that. I got to close my eyes. And I have to say, Shema Yisrael. Yisrael, my soul. Internalize, listen. Um, question? Yes. Um, when you close your eyes, do you have to be ultimately trusting more than when you're looking? There, there is an element because of trust. You, you, you're taking away the one sense that gives you balance and you're opening yourself up to just hearing. That is an element of trust. I, I, I would agree with you. Um, I, I think that's an, another key element here. So is, so is that why we close our eyes for the prayers? Because we can kind of feel it? And we trust around us that we are safe. Exactly. 
In other words, when you see something, there's a distance, some sort of distance between you and what you're seeing. When you hear something, that what you're hearing becomes a part of you. Right? Um, according to, you know, at a Jewish wedding, tradition is the groom places a veil over the bride. It's that same idea. This relationship isn't just going to be founded on the physical attraction, just founded on what we see, although that may be important. But that can't be where it stops. We're going to cover our vision. We're going to go by what we... We're going to, we want it to be experiential. We want the relationship to be experiential. Okay, does that make um, visually impaired people more um, spiritual? That's a, that's a good question. That's a very good question. I, I would venture to say it would give them that opportunity to be more spiritual. Um, I, I would pray to God, don't make me, don't give me that opportunity. I don't want to be spiritual, but, but it, so it, it would be hard to say that to somebody, but, but I, but I do agree with you. That's, that's an interesting thought that somebody who is visually impaired needs to kind of experience life uh, in that intimate setting. There's a, according to Jewish law, again, Jewish law is not just random bullet points. They're shaped by values. Jewish law, as we know from our course, covers really the gamut of, of existence. <laughs> from the, uh, you know, we say in Judaism, we, what's the word? We hatch him, snatch him, and, and what was the word? There's three levels. There's birth, marriage, and and burial, but there, there was a okay. There was a there was a cute phrase. I just ruined the whole thing. Okay, whoever's whoever's doing this recording, edit that out. I trust me, it was good. No, I'm <laughs> I was once listening to this. None of my jokes are my own. I was listening to this speaker once, and he starts saying this joke, and it's just in the middle. He's just like, it was like the joke just dropped dead. <laughs> It was like awkward. And she goes, okay, everybody, just trust me. It was hilarious. <laughs> According to Jewish law, when a husband and wife are being intimate with one another, it's supposed to be dark in the room. And the reason is because they're supposed to experience each other. It's supposed to be intimate. It's not supposed to be superficial. And although there are times where seeing is appropriate and seeing is necessary, that's just the beginning of a relationship. At some point, you know, especially at the beginning of davening, we want to see. But at the, by the time we get to the Shema, we're going to be satisfied with what we hear, with what we can internalize on a very deep level. Take a look at the word, at the, at the word um, in the Hebrew here. The first line. You see it? Shema Yisrael, listen, no, listen, or hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The ayin of the Hebrew word Shema and the dalet of the Hebrew word Echad, one. So here and one at the end. The ayin is larger in font. The dalet is larger in font. And that's actually how it appears in, in the Torah. In every standard Torah, no matter how large or small the Torah is, the ayin is going to be larger, the dalit is going to be larger. And 
there are loads of insight as to why, what, and what that represents. What does Ayin Dalad represent? What does it spell? Hood. Right? So if you, depending on how you punctuate it, it would spell, it could also spell the word aid, which means witness. Odd. Right. Or odd until, right? But, but if you spell it as aid, it means witness. We're bearing testimony. We're testifying. What does Dalad Ayin spell? It spells the word Da, which means to know. To know means, we know this from chapter three of Tanya, knowledge. The way Kabbalah understands knowledge is not just the uh, acquisition of information, but it's your relationship to the information. Right? When sometimes we know something, but we don't care. Right? So in Tanya lingo, we would call that understanding. I understand, but I don't care. Sometimes we know something and it actually motivates us emotionally. That's real knowledge, my connection to the information. That's da. Our job is to know, to connect, to care that God is one. Not just to hear and understand, but to care. To connect to this intimately, which is why we close our eyes. And when we do... What we're doing is bearing testimony to the world. When you say Shema in the morning, like you mean it, and you go to work, it's all over your face. This guy said Shema. This guy testifies that this guy lives with God. God is one with him. And you're bearing testimony that God is one. It's all over your face. It's written there. People see it. Because what is the response to saying Shema like we mean it? Closing our eyes, covering our eyes, realizing that it, we're, it, it's not just about what we see. There's more than that. We're trying to internalize, to hear, to listen. That this God who is one with everything is our God and personally relevant. When we think about that, you know what the reaction, the emotional reaction is? Take a look at the next paragraph. You should love the Lord your God. If we say the one-liner Shema properly with the proper meditation and the proper preparation, we get ourselves in the mood. So now when we say that's the emotional response to Shema. When we've internalized that God is one and relevant, we love him. You love your spouse, you feel the love toward your spouse when they're relevant to you. <laughs> and when you're relevant to them, when we realize how relevant God is, he's Echad, he's one, he's Elokeinu. So then we love him. So Love I have a with... question. Yes, please. You say uh, you love him. Isn't it you love a force or you love a connection but it's, is it a him um, I, i'm not sure if i understand your question fully because uh, you, you you've developed this relationship mm. but it's not a person it's a all it's a one it's a being it's a it's a it's, a, it's a energy but but if you say i love him it makes him like into human okay so you're saying why why are we using the term him you're saying we're humanizing god yeah that's true. There, there are 
you're right. God is not, look, God is genderless because he's not a human. Um, in, in certain contexts, cor correct, correct. Him describes the nature of the relationship. Um, there's times where God is referred to as a, a parent, even though he's not a human being. There's times where he's referred to as a king. These are all human. Uh, and a king is a man as well. What? A king is a man as well. There are times where where God there is a God is referred to as in the feminine as well. There's different angles to the relationship. One of my favorite prayers on Yom Kippur is the prayer Ki Anu Amecha. Do you remember that one, Mike? Ki Anu Amecha. We are your nation. You are our God. We are your people. You are our king. Wait. And you, we are your uh, um, flock. You are our shepherd. And we describe like 18 different angles to the relationship. And it's really one of my favorite prayers. I love it because it, it's essentially saying everything. God, God is everything. So figure out the channel that works for you. For some people, they're going to relate to God better as a parent. Sometimes they're going to relate to him better as a king. And different prayers are going to refer to him in different ways. At the end of the day, you're, you're right. We're, we're not... The moment we create this image of God, and then that's what we connect to, then you're right. We're not really connecting to God. We're, we're connecting to an image that we created. And that's the problem that atheists have is, hey, you just created this image, and now you're serving an image that you created. And atheists don't want to do idolatry because they're too intellectually honest. <laughs> and it creates, uh, it creates this big problem. And, and, and in that case, you're right. God, God is imageless. God is the creator of images. But there are channels, and, and the channel will we'll often relate to, you know, if you look at the next, the, the one-liner over here, right after the Shema, we call it, we say, the glory of his kingdom. From that element, we're referring to him as a king, which is also, you know, it gives us imagery to, to kind of build a relationship. He serves as a king, which means um, the nature of the relationship is that of independence. We're independent from the king, yet he still cares about me. Imagine being able to love a king. And we love him with all our heart. Again, translations are dangerous. If you look in the Hebrew, it says levavacha, not libcha, which means hearts. And the Talmud says both the negative and evil, the negative and positive inclination, the animal soul and the divine soul. We have to love God with our animal soul, not just our divine soul. Which means that passion that we have toward ourselves, toward things we enjoy, we we're not here to cut that out, right? Don't don't destroy your personality because you found religion. <laughs> don't destroy your sense of humor because you found religion. Don't lose your friendships, your relationships, your your talent, your regular human animal side. Don't lose it. Just direct it. Reroute it. That's what we're trying to do with, with Davening. With all of our soul, with all of our might. And the reaction to that is... It, so again, there's this process here. Let's start from the beginning. We are just thankful for being Jewish. For being part of the chosen people. Even though I didn't choose it, I've been chosen. And to testify this, we say the Shema. And we try to internalize this relationship intimately by covering our eyes. The reaction to that is I love God. Hopefully with my animal soul, 
too, not just my divine soul, with my entire soul, my entire might. And the response to that is, do a mitzvah. And these words which I command you today shall be upon your heart. If I really love God, you know, Rabbi Tversky talks about the fish love. Do I really love God? Then I'm not just going to say, I love you. How romantic. <laughs> if I really love God, then these things, what he says, I have to actually take to heart. Right? We love our spouse. Let's take what they value to heart. Let's try to be sensitive to what they value and implement it. And it's the same thing with God. We love God because he's so great yet so relevant and relatable. Let's learn his Torah. Let's take what he values to heart. And let's try to understand. Let's try to make it meaningful. Okay, that's my story and I'm sticking to it.